Chapter Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda McDaniel. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume One, Chapter Two. I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul. Shakespeare. Madame Saint-Aubert was interred in the neighbouring village church. Her husband and daughter attended her to the grave, followed by a long train of the peasantry, who were sincere mourners of this excellent woman. On her return from the funeral, Saint-Aubert shut himself in his chamber. When he came forth, it was with a serene countenance, though pale in sorrow. He gave orders that his family should attend him. Emily only was absent, who, overcome with the scene she had just witnessed, had retired to her closet to weep alone. Saint-Aubert followed her thither. He took her hand in silence, while she continued to weep. And it was some moments before he could so far command his voice as to speak. It trembled while he said, "'My Emily, I am going to prayers with my family. You will join us. We must ask support from above.' Where else ought we to seek it? Where else can we find it? Emily checked her tears and followed her father to the parlour, where, the servants being assembled, Saint-Aubert read in a low and solemn voice the evening service, and added a prayer for the soul of the departed. During this his voice often faltered, his tears fell upon the book, and at length he paused but the sublime emotions of pure devotion gradually elevated his views above this world and finally brought comfort to his heart. When the service was ended and the servants were withdrawn, he tenderly kissed Emily and said, I have endeavored to teach you from your earliest youth the duty of self-command. I have pointed out to you the great importance of it through life not only as it preserves us in the various and dangerous temptations that call us from rectitude and virtue, but as it limits the indulgences which are termed virtuous, yet which, extended beyond a certain boundary, are vicious, for their consequence is evil. All excess is vicious. Even that sorrow, which is amiable in its origin, becomes a selfish and unjust passion, if indulged at the expense of our duties, by our duties I mean what we owe to ourselves as well as to others. The indulgence of excessive grief enervates the mind and almost incapacitates it for again partaking of those various innocent enjoyments which a benevolent God designed to be the sunshine of our lives. My dear Emily, recollect and practice the precepts I have so often given you and which your own experience has so often shown you to be wise. Your sorrow is useless. Do not receive this as merely a commonplace remark, but let reason, therefore, restrain sorrow. I would not annihilate your feelings, my child. I would only teach you to command them, for whatever may be the evils resulting from too susceptible a heart, nothing can be hoped from an insensible one. That, on the other hand, is all vice, vice of which the deformity is not softened or the effect consoled for by any semblance or possibility of good. 
you know my sufferings and are therefore convinced that mine are not the light words which on these occasions are so often repeated to destroy even the sources of honest emotion of which merely display the selfish ostentation of a false philosophy i will show you my emily that i can practise what i advise i have said thus much because i cannot bear to see you wasting in useless sorrow for want of that resistance which is due from mind and i have not said it till now because there is a period when all reasoning must yield to nature that is past and another when excessive indulgence having sunk into habit weighs down the elasticity of the spirits so as to render conquest nearly impossible this is to come you my emily will show that you are willing to avoid it emily smiled through her tears upon her father dear sir said she and her voice trembled she would have added i will show myself worthy of being your daughter but a mingled emotion of gratitude affection and grief overcame her st aubert suffered her to weep without interruption and then began to talk on common topics the first person who came to condole with st aubert was monsieur barreau an austere and seemingly unfeeling man a taste for botany had introduced them to each other for they had frequently met in their wanderings among the mountains monsieur barreau had retired from the world and almost from society to live in a pleasant chateau on the skirts of the woods near la vallee he also had been disappointed in his opinion of mankind but he did not like st aubert pity and mourn for them he felt more indignation at their vices than compassion for their weaknesses st aubert was somewhat surprised to see him for though he had often pressed him to come to the chateau he had never till now accepted the invitation and now he came without ceremony or reserve entering the parlour as an old friend the claims of misfortune appeared to have softened down all the ruggedness and prejudices of his heart st aubert unhappy seemed to be the sole idea that occupied his mind it was in manners more than in words that he appeared to sympathize with his friends he spoke little on the subject of their grief but the minute attention he gave them and the modulated voice and softened look that accompanied it came from his heart and spoke to theirs at this melancholy period st aubert was likewise visited by madame Cheron, his only surviving sister who had been some years a widow and now resided in her own estate near thoulouse the intercourse between them had not been very frequent in her condolements words were not wanting she understood not the magic of the look that speaks at once to the soul or the voice that sinks like balm to the heart but she assured st aubert that she sincerely sympathized with him praised the virtues of his late wife and then offered what she considered to be consolation emily wept unceasingly while she spoke st aubert was tranquil listened to what she said in silence and then turned the discourse upon another subject at parting she pressed him and her niece to make an early visit change of place will amuse you said she and it is wrong to give way to grief st aubert acknowledged the truth of these words of course but at the same time felt more reluctant than ever to quit the spot which his past happiness had consecrated the presence of his wife had sanctified every surrounding scene and each day as it gradually softened the acuteness of his suffering assisted the tender enchantment that bound him to home 
but there were calls which must be complied with and of this kind was the visit he paid to his brother-in-law monsieur canal an affair of an interesting nature made it necessary that he should delay this visit no longer and wishing to rouse emily from her dejection he took her with him to Epourville. As the carriage entered upon the forest that adjoined his paternal domain, his eyes once more caught, between the chestnut avenue, the turreted corners of the chateau. He sighed to think of what had passed since he was last there, and that it was now the property of a man who neither revered nor valued it. At length he entered the avenue, whose lofty trees had so often delighted him when a boy, and whose melancholy shade was now so congenial with the tone of his spirits. Every feature of the edifice, distinguished by an air of heavy grandeur, appeared successively between the branches of the trees, the broad turret, the arched gateway that led to the courts, the drawbridge, and the dry fosse which surrounded the whole. The sound of carriage wheels brought a troop of servants to the great gate where Saint-Aubert alighted, and from which he led Emily into the Gothic hall, now no longer hung with the arms and ancient banners of the family. These were displaced, and the oak wainscoting and beams that crossed the roof were painted white. The large table, too, that used to stretch along the upper end of the hall, where the master of the mansion loved to display his hospitality, and whence the peal of laughter and the song of conviviality had so often resounded, was now removed. Even the benches that had surrounded the hall were no longer there. The heavy walls were hung with frivolous ornaments, and everything that appeared denoted the false taste and corrupted sentiments of the present owner. Saint-Aubert followed a gay Parisian servant to a parlour, where sat Monsieur and Madame Canal, who received him with a stately politeness, and after a few formal words of condolement, seemed to have forgotten that they ever had a sister. Emily felt tears swell into her eyes, and then resentment checked them. Saint-Aubert, calm and deliberate, preserved his dignity without assuming importance, and Canal was depressed by his presence without exactly knowing wherefore. After some general conversation, Saint-Aubert requested to speak with him alone, and Emily, being left with Madame Canal, soon learned that a large party was invited to dine at the chateau, and was compelled to hear that nothing which was past and irremediable ought to prevent the festivity of the present hour. Saint-Aubert, when he was told that company were expected, felt a mixed emotion of disgust and indignation against the insensibility of Canal, which prompted him to return home immediately. But he was informed that Madame Chéron had been asked to meet him, and when he looked at Emily, and considered that a time might come when the enmity of her uncle would be prejudicial to her, he determined not to incur it himself, by conduct which would be resented as indecorous, by the very persons who now showed so little sense of decorum. Among the visitors assembled at dinner were two Italian gentlemen, of whom one was named Martoni, a distant relation of Madame Canal, a man about forty, of an uncommonly handsome person, with features manly and expressive, but whose countenance exhibited, upon the whole, more of the haughtiness of command and the quickness of discernment than of any other character. Signor Cavigny, his friend appeared to be about thirty, inferior in dignity, but equal to him in penetration of countenance, and superior in insinuation of manner. Emily was shocked by the salutation with which Madame Chiron met her father. 
dear brother said she i am concerned to see you look so very ill do pray have advice st aubert answered with a melancholy smile that he felt himself much as usual but emily's fears made her now fancy that her father looked worse than he really did emily would have been amused by the new character she saw and the varied conversation that passed during dinner which was served in a style of splendour she had seldom seen before had her spirits been less oppressed of the guest signor montoni was lately come from italy and he spoke of the commotions which at that period agitated the country talked of party differences with warmth and then lamented the probable consequences of the tumults his friend spoke with equal ardour of the politics of his country praised the government and prosperity of venice and boasted of its decided superiority over all the other italian states he then turned to the ladies and talked with the same eloquence of parisian fashions the french opera and french manners and on the latter subject he did not fail to mingle what is so particularly agreeable to french taste the flattery was not detected by those to whom it was addressed though its effect in producing submissive attention did not escape his observation when he would disengage himself from the assiduities of the other ladies he sometimes addressed emily but she knew nothing of parisian fashions or parisian operas and her modesty simplicity and correct manners formed a decided contrast to those of her female companions after dinner st aubert stole from the room to view once more the old chestnut which canal talked of cutting down as he stood under its shade and looked up among its branches still luxuriant and saw here and there the blue sky trembling between them the pursuits and events of his early days crowded fast to his mind with the figures and characters of friends long since gone from the earth and he now felt himself to be almost an insulated being with nobody but his emily for his heart to turn to he stood lost amid the scenes of years which fancy called up till the succession closed with the picture of his dying wife and he started away to forget if possible at the social board st aubert ordered his carriage at an early hour and emily observed that he was more than unusually silent and dejected on the way home but she considered this to be the effect of his visit to a place which spoke so eloquently of former times nor suspected that he had a cause for grief which he concealed from her on entering the chateau she felt more depressed than ever for she more than ever missed the presence of that dear parent who whenever she had been from home used to welcome her return with smiles and fondness now all was silent and forsaken but what reason and effort may fail to do time effects week after week passed away and each as it passed stole something from the harshness of her affliction till it was mellowed to that tenderness which the feeling heart cherishes as sacred st aubert on the contrary visibly declined in health though emily who had been so constantly with him was almost the last person who observed it his constitution had never recovered from the late attack of the fever and the succeeding shock it received from madame st aubert's death had produced its present infirmity his physician now ordered him to travel for it was perceptible that sorrow had seized upon his nerves weakened as they had been by the preceding illness and variety of scene it was probable would by amusing his mind restore them to their proper tone 
For some days Emily was occupied in preparations to attend him, and he, by endeavours to diminish his expenses at home during the journey, a purpose which determined him at length to dismiss his domestics, Emily seldom opposed her father's wishes by questions or remonstrances, or she would now have asked why he did not take a servant, and have represented that his infirm health made one almost necessary. But when, on the eve of their departure, she found that he had dismissed Jacques, Francis, and Mary, and detained only Teresa, the old housekeeper, she was extremely surprised, and ventured to ask his reason for having done so. "'To save expenses, my dear,' he replied, "'we are going on an expensive excursion.' The physician had prescribed the air of Languedoc and Provence, and Saint-Aubert determined, therefore, to travel leisurely along the shores of the Mediterranean toward Provence. They retired early to their bedchamber on the night before their departure, but Emily had a few books and other things to collect, and the clock had struck twelve before she had finished, or had remembered that some of her drawing instruments, which she meant to take with her, were in the parlour below. As she went to fetch these, she passed her father's room, and perceiving the door half open, concluded that he was in his study. For since the death of Madame Saint-Aubert, it had been frequently his custom to rise from his restless bed, and go thither to compose his mind. When she was below stairs, she looked into this room, but without finding him, and as she returned to her chamber, she tapped at his door, and receiving no answer, stepped softly in to be certain whether he was there. The room was dark, but a light glimmered through some panes of glass that were placed in the upper part of a closet door. Emily believed her father to be in the closet, and, surprised that he was up at so late an hour, apprehended he was unwell, and was going to inquire. But considering that her sudden appearance at this hour might alarm him, she removed her light to the staircase, and then stepped softly to the closet. On looking through the panes of glass, she saw him seated at a small table, with papers before him, some of which he was reading with deep attention and interest, during which he often wept and sobbed aloud. Emily, who had come to the door to learn whether her father was ill, was now detained there by a mixture of curiosity and tenderness. She could not witness his sorrow without being anxious to know the subject of, and she therefore continued to observe him in silence, concluding that those papers were letters of her dear mother. Presently he knelt down, and with a look so solemn as she had seldom seen him assume, and which was mingled with a certain wild expression that partook more of horror than of any other character, he prayed silently for a considerable time. When he rose, a ghastly paleness was on his countenance. Emily was hastily retiring, but she saw him turn again to the papers, and she stopped. He took from among them a small case, and from thence a miniature picture. The rays of light fell strongly upon it, and she perceived it to be that of a lady, but not of her mother. Saint-Aubert gazed earnestly and tenderly upon his portrait, put it to his lips and then to his heart, and sighed with a convulsive force. Emily could scarcely believe what she saw to be real. She never knew till now that he had a picture of any other lady than her mother, much less that he had one which he evidently valued so highly. But having looked repeatedly to be certain that it was not the resemblance of Madame Saint-Aubert, she became entirely convinced that it was designed for that of some other person. 
At length St. Aubert returned the picture to its case, and Emily, recollecting that she was intruding upon his private sorrows, softly withdrew from the chamber. End of Volume 1, Chapter 2 Recording by Linda McDaniel, Atlanta, Georgia, March 2009